0: Hello, and
1: welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. In this episode, I talk with Alan Berenberg about his book, Gulag Town, Company Town, Forced Labor and its Legacy in Vorkuta. Alan Berenberg is an associate professor of history at Texas Tech University, where he specializes in the social and economic history of the Soviet Union from the 1930s to the 1970s. He is the author of Gulag Town, Company Town, Forced Labor and Its Legacy in Varkhuta. Fascination with the Gulag seems to preoccupy people's interest in the Soviet Union. I mean, the, the kind of popular interest in the Soviet Union. How do you explain this fascination?
0: That I don't know.
1: Uh, What
0: fascination? I mean, well, I I do and I don't. I mean, I can speak to it from my own experience, how I became fascinated with the gulag, which I think was probably like a lot of other people did. You know, I took a Russian history class in college and uh, it was one of the topics we talked about. Um, the, The gulag has such rich, produced such rich literature. Um, that I think that for a lot of people is is an entree into into fascination with with the Gulag. I mean, I remember very distinctly reading uh, the Kalima Tales by Varlam Shalamov as an undergrad, and just being just transfixed by it, and just fascinated and and curious. Um, I think that there is part of it is there's an obsession with the kind of macabre side of of, of history, you know. People like war, they like mass death um, in terms of, you know, uh, popular culture. Um, but also, uh, you know, I think there is something fundamentally fascinating about when people are stretched to their limits um, by circumstances, you know, in term- and, and are truly, you know, fighting for their own survival. And I think the gulag is one of the clear examples of that. And so uh, it's it's not surprising in that sense that people that people are interested
1: in, in,
0: essentially, people's story of how they survive.
1: Yeah, and I also think, I mean, it, besides the literature, just the understanding of how the Gulag worked, what life was like there, what were the circumstances, what was the violence, um, is really, you know, have, has been under a shroud for, you know, until the you know, last 20 years.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think... Um, when you look back on on the historiography of the gulag uh... there was a lot of really interesting stuff being published in the fifties and sixties uh... about it and then you know it kind of it it kind of hit a rut <laughs> you know by the time you get to the to the to the nineteen eighties and people are seem to be involved in these kinds of interminable debates about how many victims there were uh... which you know is an important question of course but um, it's there's only so much I think you can make of quantitative questions. They're they're not as interesting as qualitative questions, and uh, so I think people got kind of mired mired in that, um, and so certainly uh, uh, that that's a that's a reason for increased interest. There's a, there's a lot more interesting stuff being written about, a lot more work being done on it.
1: Now talk about that. What what how has historians' understanding of the gulag changed since the archives opened 25 years ago?
0: Well. I mean, I, I think, you know, the archival opening is, is, is one aspect, which I'll, maybe I'll talk about in one second. And another is, is, I think, the kind of the ideological picture changed, um, that, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was less invested in, in a kind of Cold War debate about how bad the Soviet Union was. And so I think it became more possible to have a kind of serious historical debate about what what the gulag was and you know what so what the nature of Soviet terror was in general but to to get back to to um, to archives I mean there's just all kinds of new material that historians have to examine that um, doesn't certainly doesn't answer all questions but certain, maybe answer some questions and certainly raise a lot of questions. I mean, I think pe- people found all kinds of really interesting things in their initial forays into the archives. You know, I think of the, uh, you know, the discovery that the Gulag um, authorities released a large percentage of the population every year, between 20 and 40 percent of the population. That was kind of a bombshell. That, that totally changed the way that people thought about the system. Well, well wait, well, why are they doing this? Who are they releasing? How are they doing it? And so that, that's, that, that led to all kinds of, of interesting questions. You have the example of, I mean, uh, Steve Barnes, you know, going to Karaganda, um, you know, the, uh, in, in, during his dissertation research for what the book that became Death and Redemption and getting to look at prisoner files for the first time and getting to see what it is the authorities were actually keeping track of about prisoners. I mean, led to some really interesting and, and provocative discussions about, about how prisoners were categorized and prisoner identity. Uh, so, I mean, the, the opening of the archives has opened up all kinds of, of, of possibilities. Uh, I, would, I would add to this, too, that, you know, central archives aside, uh, there, there's all kinds of interesting treasures uh, that I found uh, when I did work in Varakuta. I went to the local history museum, uh, which was really an, an incredible place, and, and they had a huge collection of photographs, um, which i think add add of course a whole dimension to to trying to, to understanding the gulag and also um, unpublished manuscripts uh, of memoirs by prisoners which were really really interesting because you know they weren't they weren't written for publication they were and mo- many of them were actually written while the soviet union still existed
1: mm-hmm. wasn't there a a plan to do a kind of memoir project in the 1960s i remember hearing something about this but maybe my memory is vague
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I think what you're referring to is a project that uh, Semyon um started. He was a, a, a survivor of Kalima, and he um, started collecting archi- started collecting memoirs um, in in the late '50s and early '60s. And um, then it became it, it was no longer possible to actually publish them, um, but uh, but he continued to collect. And so yes there certainly were these kinds of plans to 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 collect to collect these these memoirs and 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 I think it's very interesting to read them because they they're not they're not necessarily interested in the same in describing the same things that 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 later memoirs are because later you know there's Solzhenitsyn there is Ivan Denisovich there's a whole kind of canon of memoir literature which people tend to uh, fit their memories into, uh, and so the the initial ones talk about all kinds of things that, from the perspective of someone who had read a ton of other memoirs, came later was re- really fascinating because just, we weren 't used to people talking about these
1: things, so what did they talk about
0: well, um, they talked about uh, for example um, crossing borders in the camps they talked about um, uh, you know, people getting passes to leave the camps. They talked about um, scientific discoveries in the camps. You know, like there's there's one memoir I'm think memoir I'm thinking of in particular that um, by Alek um, that has actually now been published, but uh, it sat for a long time in the archive in 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 unpublished. And, and you know, he he his job was he basically figured out how to make an X-ray machine um, from from relatively ordinary parts that were sitting around the city of Varkuta. And so he, um, he, he basically said to a camp director, I can build you an X-ray machine. And uh, there was a lot of incredulity, but then he did it. And then he suddenly became, uh, in demand and, and ended up building X-ray machines for a number of different, um, camp sections there and, and had to travel between camps in order to do it. Um, So it was that kind of, that kind of information. Um, another thing that I would say that that's really big though, um, is, Descriptions of life after release um, were very different in these, un- in these early unpublished memoirs because uh, I, I think that the, the kind of process of release and, and, and being outside the camp is much, is much more a kind of, I, w- I don't want to say seamless, but much less in terms of I was in camp, I was released, you know, life was better. I had freedom. It was much more of a kind of, well, I was, I was there, I wasn't allowed to leave. And thinking about... The kinds of social relationships that people had and uh, their jobs uh, it it's all kind of complicated by this picture of how people described their life after release in these earlier memoirs.
1: Well, you know what this makes me ask a, a kind of very basic but certainly complex question, and that is, given you know the things you've just said what what was the gulag if it's not what we thought which is you know some people refer to it simply as a death camp or you know the the way solzhenitsyn describes it or and, but you're you're describing something that's much more fluid that there's much more there's much more going on there than we previously thought so what was the purpose of this institution
0: well yes uh, this is this is the million dollar question what is the purpose of this institution i mean i think first of all to answer the question, one has to understand how complex and big the Gulag was. I mean, it was not a system even just of camps. It involved camps and prisons, um, you know, exile settlements. Uh, there were all kinds of gradations of, of, of incarceration um, in, included with, within the Gulag. I, I think ultimately, you know, it was a system created because of... Uh, a desire to to incarcerate opposition. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a political institution um, that, that is created and generated by essentially the, the the first five-year plan and the desire to transform society and the notion that this will create enemies and people who will who will fight against it, who who will need to be dealt with in one way or another, whether it's exile or imprisonment. Um, but. That isn't, of course, the end of the story, because the way the institution operated was not was often not as a political institution. It very quickly became this very um, economic institution. That is, became it became an economic empire. Um, and then you also have to you also have to recognize the kind of I would argue colonial aspect of the Gulag. I mean, it was used as a tool to transform and colonize. Um, large parts of Soviet space, and this is very, very explicit in the early, even in the earliest orders about the gulag that we will use this as a tool. We'll use prisoners as colonists to to transform these these previously untamed spaces
1: yeah that, that's that's actually really interesting and um, let's let's get into some of the substance of your study. What drew you to conduct a, a study of Vorkuta?
0: What drew me there was the desire to write a study of, well, first of all, a big camp. You know, I, I thought it, it made sense to pick one of the large camp complexes. And Varkuta, by, by some measurements, was, was perhaps the biggest in, in a single place. Uh, but I also wanted to study a place where one could see, easily see what happened after the Gulag. I wanted to be able to see the, the, the transition of, of, of what a Gulag camp complex was to what came after it. Um, it, it was, so it was a, it was a big place. Um, it was one of the most notorious campsites. So I knew I would get lots of memoir literature about it. Cause a lot, certainly a lot was, was written about it. Uh, it was also frankly more accessible <laughs> than some of my other choices. I mean, I, I was certainly have been interested in going to Narilsk to study Norilsk, but of course it's a closed city. Um, and Kalima seemed, uh, very distant, <laughs> So, so, having a city ju- that was just above the Arctic Circle, that uh, uh, only 40 hours by train from Moscow seemed, uh, seemed more practical, I guess.
1: <laughs> given the circumstances yes given the circumstances: <laughs> uh-huh. Um, now, much of your and, and I also like that, I, was it also the fact that here you have uh, a city that grew up around the camp? like it's not just a kind of isolated camp but the fact that a, a city grew up around it also produced possibilities for looking at the relationship between the camp and society outside of it
0: yeah absolutely and the fact that there was nothing there before that as in no permanent settlement made it much easier to 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 see how that process took place because if i had i could have chosen i could have chosen camps that were near permanent settlements that had existed before uh, but I thought it would be really interesting to see it in a place where essentially the, the camp directors had felt that they were working with nothing, with empty space with which they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, whereas, you know, there were camps in Moscow too, but, uh, but obviously that was a very, very different scenario.
1: Now a lot much of your analysis concerns the issue of space and the space of the camp and the space of the city, but especially you emphasize those spaces when those spaces overlap where the camp and the city kind of converge in a variety of places um Why are these spaces and the relationships they produce important to understanding vorkuta
0: so I mean space it would when one thinks about it kind of in an abstract sense, I mean, space would have to be central to the gulag. It's designed, prisons are designed spatially, right? As are cities. Um, but, but thinking about space, thinking about what spaces people are allowed to, certain people are allowed to move in or, or, or designate as areas where they are allowed to, to, to be. Um, and so this was a way of trying to understand in more detail and more in and kind of from from a really concrete level, what what does camp mean? What does it mean? What what is because you, you often see these kinds of these labels, like this is a camp, this is the city. Well does it what does it mean in practice? What does it mean in terms of in terms of how it looks on the ground? Um you know, I, I think that the the example that I give in the introduction of my book is that um at the B In the uh, 2001 encyclopedia of Komi Republic, which is the region where where Varkuta is located, there are two entries on Varkuta. There's Varkuta the city, which just describes it as a city, and there's there's an entry that says, you know, Varkuta prison camp complex. And they're totally unrelated to each other, Um, which, which creates the appearance that they were unrelated to each other. But in fact, when you look at the configuration of how this camp was built, it was so much more complicated. Uh you had um, you had camp zones built right with, with free settlements were almost always so-called free settlements were were, were, were right outside of them, um, very close to each other. You had uh zone camp zones redesignated as being part of the city, or vice versa. You had camp zones expanding or getting smaller. Uh so it's clear that you know we have this vision of of the kind of gulag camp zone from really from solzhenitsyn and from other memoirs of this kind of impermeable uh... rectangular space with walls barbed wire guarded um, where where space is, is extremely well delineated and where within that space uh... there is a high degree of control and cl- and when you actually look at these spaces over time, you in fact find that that's not the case. Um, you know, the Var- there, there were thousands of prisoners in Varkuta all throughout the 1930s but it's not really until the early 1940s that they're able even to build zones, barbed wire enclosures around many of the places where the prisoners uh, were, were incarcerated because they simply didn't have the materials. There was no wood because it's above, you know, it's above the Arctic Circle. There's no, there are no trees you can use. You have to bring in lumber. You have to bring in the barbed wire. And there was an actual physical um, deficiency or kind of a, a shortage of the actual goods one needed to build the zones.
1: Is this indicative of the the histor- historical development of the camp city of Vorkuta? The fact that it's part of this colonial settlement initiative, rather than say, I don't know. The other camps. I'm, I'm wondering, how does Vorkuta compare to other camps in this sense?
0: Yeah, um, that, that, of course, is the other kind of million-dollar question, is what, what does this one case mean? Um, and I think there are a couple of ways to think about it. On the one hand, you say, well, you know, this was a remote place. This was not a place where it was likely someone could escape. <laughs> there wasn't really anywhere to go, and there wasn't even a railroad until 1943, um, so you know, it's it's very hard very hard to to conceive of escape from this place. On the other hand, this is a camp that is set aside to hold some of the state's most dangerous criminals. Uh, so it's a place where one would have expect to find the highest degree of security. You know, most camps were in, and 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 colonies, which were what they as they called the the what well, were also basically camps, but for people with shorter sentences were located much closer to urban spaces were much more permeable had much more interaction between the inside and the outside so um, I actually think it's it that this is simply a very vivid example of what took place everywhere now it it doesn't mean that when someone from Moscow um, showed up or or learned about something that had happened and realized hey you guys gotta gotta tighten security doesn't mean that when that when when those phone calls were not made that there weren't attempts made to tighten security and that's because that's what the rules said, but but in actual practice, um, all all of the camps were, more, were much kind of messier in terms of their their um, enclosure and, and and relationship to the outside spatially.
1: Now, describe the. You make a, a, a interesting distinction in, in how you uh, describe the inhabitants of this camp. You you re-use, you use the term prisoners but non-prisoners rather than, say, I don't know, civilians or free persons or whatever. Uh, what is the relationship between prisoners and non-prisoners and the role of patronage in determining their place in the Vorokutaw hierarchy?
0: So when I, when I started writing um, the dissertation that, that became the book, you know, I really struggled with what do I call the people outside the camp? I mean, it was clear I called prisoners prisoners. What do I call them? Can't call them free, you know. When we're talking about you know Soviet Union in 1948, who's free? You know, there's all kinds of you know conscription of various kinds. It's widespread. Uh, there's very little geographical mobility, and so so I thought, well, you know, how how can I how can I designate these people? And I and and eventually, on, on a su- suggestion, um, I, I came up with the term non-prisoner because essentially that's the only distinction i can i can a concrete distinction that i can make in status because you know places like Varkuta, then who are the non-prisoners well there are some guards and there are some camp employees um and and uh you know people who worked in 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 the nkbd and mvd but almost everyone else is an exile or an ex-prisoner who has a limitation on their mobility and rights so so I th- so essentially what I d- what I decided was you know this is really the only distinction I can make. Some people are prison- some people are prisoners, and some people are, are non-prisoners. Um, this doesn't. But of course, when you think about actual social status, it's way more complicated because there are all of these categories and statuses that are that are applied to people. You know, so prisoner, ex-prisoner, um, you know, exile. What what does that mean? Uh, uh, what does it mean to be one particular kind of exile or another particular kind of exile? And those all have a kind of legal status. On the other hand, when you get to actual social practices, and this gets to your, to your question on patronage, um, this official hierarchy only gets you so far in understanding people's relationships. So within the Gulag, you have some, of, some, some very strange, uh, at least when I saw them at first, inversions of status. Uh, where uh, you have a prisoner who who has who is ends up being very very privileged and whose privileges are not just greater than other prisoners but greater than other non prisoners so that, that my favorite example of this uh, from from that I discovered in, in my book was um, Alexei kopler who uh, was a huge Soviet celebrity when he was sent to varkuta and in, in the in the early nineteen forties, he he was a screenwriter. He had he had won the Lenin Prize, I believe, um, uh, for writing for writing a couple of very 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 important screenplays. Um, and he got into trouble because he dated Stalin's daughter, and Svetlana uh, Alilueva, and uh, you know. I,
1: the so, gumption. Pa- <laughs> I and just so, I yeah. have to say so, the, well, the gumption. But so no. Stalin, Stalin had issues
0: with the relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes.
0: He, obviously. And, and so uh, one of the issues was a perfectly rational, I think, uh, issue, which was that, you know, Coppola was at least 20 years older than Svetlana. So, you know, that was a, that's a normal, I think, fatherly reaction right, uh, to this relationship. On the other hand, uh, the other reaction, of course, was that Coppola was Jewish. And, you know, this is before really the heyday of official anti-semitism but it's pretty clear that stalin did not want uh, a jew in his immediate family uh so uh so he but anyway he he took the extraordinary means of simply having him sent to varkuta <laughs> <laughs> and to, to kind of get him out of the, to get him out of the picture and so he he shows up in varkuta and you know he's here's this guy he's a celebrity people know who he is he's a major cultural figure and so the camp director at the time uh kind of takes him out of working in the coal mines and says, well, you know, I need to make use of your talents. Um, I'm going to use you as a, as a city photographer. And so um, the camp director is, is in the midst of building, starting to build a kind of monumental city of Varkuta with parks and, and, and public buildings and theaters and things like this. And so Coppler, he wants someone to document this. who can take good photographs to send back to Moscow to his superiors. And Coppler's perfect for it. And so Coppler ends up living in the middle of the city of Varkuta, not in the camp in a photo hut where he works in basically his own private apartment uh, which in the context of you know 1944 Varkuta is unheard of I mean not even only the very 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 top brass of camp officials get to live in such conditions so it's a strange kind of inver- almost inversion of status although of course you know Coppler is a prisoner and he cannot leave until his term is up um, and I would add, as a kind of postscript on this story, to show you the importance of the patronage relationship that he happened to have with his camp director, Coppler, after he's released from Varkuta, because he only gets a five-year sentence, which is unusually short, tries to go back to Moscow, gets arrested immediately, and then is sent to another camp. And in the other camp, he does not enjoy the same patronage relationship with the camp director. He works in a coal mine and barely survives.
1: Well, I was going to also kind of have you talk a bit about the fact. I mean, these camp directors were kind of giving patronage all over, particularly in, in the sense of like them being the, I don't know, the 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 fathers of the city in terms of developing cultural institutions, parks. I mean, some of the things you just talked about. What was the kind of? I'm I'm trying to kind of figure out these guys. Like, what was their you know modus operandi?
0: Yeah, that that's 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 hard to uh, hard to divine when you have, especially when you have you know this, it, you know this this figure of the perpetrator, um, who apparently occasionally does really benevolent things uh, for for certain prisoners. On the other hand, while he's while he's having thousands of prisoners you know march off to their death on a daily basis, you know. I struggle with this a lot and ultimately I think that many of these camp directors simply saw themselves as Soviet bosses like they would be in any other context. And so they behaved like other Soviet bosses did elsewhere, which was you, you, you were a patron to cultural figures. You helped out artists and architects and ballet dancers, um, you know, this was something that, that Stalin did. And his inner circle did, and it filtered all the way down to the to 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 all levels of officials. Um, there's a really interesting this this camp director uh, who was who was patron to Alexei Koppler. His name is uh, Mikhail Maltsev. Uh, he he's a he's a really interesting figure, uh, partly because there's there's so much written about him. He 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 shows up in in the Gulag Archipelago. Um, when Solzhenitsyn writes a chapter saying about, about essentially the bosses and asks the question, was it possible to be a decent boss? Um, and he has an ex-prisoner from Varkuta testifying that actually, you know, Maltsev was a good guy. He did his best. You know, he, he, he tried not to have too many prisoners die under his, under his leadership. And Solzhenitsyn is very skeptical of this. And he's right to be skeptical because, you know, death rates were extraordinarily high. Um, uh so but you know clearly uh, that's there's an example actually of patronage in action because that prisoner who said something nice about Maltsev was himself probably a beneficiary of Maltsev's patronage in the camps so that that tells you kind of the 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 importance of of, of these kinds of relationships I, I would also add by the way that, that there was a plan to write a screenplay about varkuta um uh, to make a film about varkuta um just after the Second World War, in which Maltsev was going to be the hero, and uh, a filmmaker Leonid Agurinovich um, actually went to Varkuta uh, to interview him and meet him, and and sort of wrote wrote an account of this experience. And he wrote the screenplay, but it was of course rejected. Um, as as I mean, it was very hard to get a film made in the late 1940s. But it's so so we have this this these very interesting uh, accounts of who this of, of this camp director.
1: Now, when Stalin dies in 1953, shortly after there is a kind of mass release of, of prisoners from the Gulag in general. Um, and, and, the, and in your story in particular, Vorkuta takes on more of the, the aspects of the city in terms of the development of the city. Um, how did Vorkuta transform after Stalin's death?
0: Well, yeah, it's a very complicated story. Uh, because you know Varkuta, like all of these other communities across the Soviet Union that were so tied to forced labor, were really kind of cut adrift um, in uh, after Stalin dies i mean i mean there 's a very clear indication from Moscow once you know, half the prisoners are released um, you know, only a few except for Stalin dies that things are going to change radically but there 's n- but it 's not clear what the end game is it 's not clear whether there will continue to be camps, what size the camps will be, um, we, you know, what, who the prisoners will be. And on the ground, you know, there's, there are all of these managers who run coal mines, who had run them with prisoner labor, who are now suddenly faced with the question of what are they going to do going forward um, and this accelerates as more and more prisoners are released over the course of the, of, of the 1950s. And, and there's really no central policy telling them what they're supposed to do. So they come up with all kinds of, I would call them kind of survival techniques, really, to, uh, to, to, to deal with this issue of, 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 of labor. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm maybe not answering this question very well. <laughs>
1: I guess what I'm getting at is that, um, you know, where do these people go? Like, what? How do they? Do they settle in Vorokuta? Do they move elsewhere in the Soviet Union? Uh, how do they become add to the population of the city? How do they turn around and become labor for the coal mines?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the story of ex-prisoners um, is 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 very interesting. I mean. They they make choices after they're released, although these choices are of course very circumscribed. There's a you know there's a, there's some percentage of prisoners who are allowed to basically go to go settle somewhere else, to go wherever they want in the Soviet Union, um, and many many of them are not able to decide what they are not able to leave the city at least for a while, and um, ultimately many people opt to stay. Um, they opt to stay because it's familiar. They opt to stay because uh, they, they have jobs and in many cases they actually already have housing. Uh, one of the really interesting things that I found about what happened in Varkuta was that um, so most of the prisoners in Varkuta aren't released in 1953. Uh, the the biggest years of release are 1955, 56, and 57. That's because of the, the profile of the population. There were a lot of counter-revolutionary prisoners. So they're released later. Um, one of the things that, that, that happens is that uh, law, the, the regulations of, of the camps are changed in 1954, giving camp directors a lot of leeway into allowing prisoners to live outside the camp zone itself. So allowing essentially saying you're still a prisoner but you are allowed to live essentially not in the camp but in the city on the other side of the barbed wire as long as you go to work every day as long as there are no problems they're paid like full employees they get they get housing given to them which is usually not very nice but regardless it's housing um and they're encouraged to have their families come live with them and so as as a result a couple years down the road when they're actually released they're already set up reasonably well in civilian life. Their families are there, they have housing, and they have a job. Um, which, which is, uh, you know, those are the two hardest things to get in anywhere in the Soviet Union were housing and a job.
1: And this is a different story than, say, the one that uh, Miriam Dobson tells in the sense of the, the, the stigma that people face, uh, the difficulties they face, the kind of trauma. Um, that really these people remain on a marginal existence on soviet society but here you're kind of complicating that picture
0: yes i absolutely am i mean uh, there's no question that for a large part of the gulag population dobson's story make you know is is makes sense and is is correct um but it misses i think the idea, it misses the point that that many people opt opt to stay um where they are and you know while there's no question that there is discrimination against ex prisoners in varkuta i mean it's it's not just you know it's systemic there it, there's legal discrimination there's there's economic discrimination there's informal discrimination there's, there's there's surveillance but regardless the the shortage of labor in varkuta and other ex, other former gulag cities in many ways mitigates against this because people on the managers on the ground need workers they need people to 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 continue to keep the mines working to meet the plan, there you know sometimes they don't have any other options except ex-prisoners. Sometimes they have the option of having ex-prisoners or having say recruited workers who come from elsewhere. But those people are young, they're often unruly, they don't know the jobs, they don't know the, the prisoners are all trained, um, and so they're they're very uh, they're very desirable. I mean, one of the things that happened that really opened my eyes when I was doing my my, my research for the dissertation and then the book was that, you know, I was I did some oral oral interviews and I interviewed somebody and, and I, I started off by saying, okay, you know, so when were you a prisoner in Varkuta? And he said, Well, I wasn't a prisoner in Varkuta. I said, Really? He said, Well, he said, I was a prisoner near Kuibyshev uh, but what happened to me was when I was released from the camps, I went back to my 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 village in Ukraine and um I tried, I basically tried to remake my life there, and I faced such horrible discrimination that I decided to leave. And one of my school friends from school uh, was also a released prisoner, and he had been in Varkuta, and he said to me, you know, this is where you, come up to Varkuta, this is actually a place that's pretty open towards ex-prisoners, you can make a life for yourself there. And So that's what he did.
1: I mean, it does emphasize the point that you're making about the kind of colonial aspect, the settlement aspect of the camps, that they're kind of conquering the land and then building these new settlements.
0: Yes, and uh, absolutely, and in and, and the, and the attempt to kind of tie people to, to staying there. And I think you know, one of the things that is, has been lost in the literature on Gulag ex-prisoners, which has generally focused on people who are trying to return to Moscow and Leningrad, One of the things things that's been lost is that, you know, most of the prisoners in the Gulag were peasants. And they were coming, they were not coming from Moscow and St. Petersburg. Some of them were coming from some pretty terrible places. Um, Places that had been, you know, if if you came from from eastern Ukraine, I mean, your village had been utterly destroyed twice, right? It had been destroyed by collectivization and then again by war. So why would you want to go home to that? When you, could, when you could actually stay in, in a place like Varkuta and you made very good money by Soviet standards. And you could, have a, you, could, you could have a much higher standard of living than you would have in those villages where you would be returning to.
1: And finally, um, how does the history of Varkuta shed light on the Gulag's lasting legacy on Russia?
0: I think it shows quite clearly just how deep the legacy is. I mean, this is not something that ever ended. Um, And I mean that in a variety of ways. Um, There is still a prison camp in Varkuta. It's much smaller than than it was. Um, It incarcerates primarily violent criminals. Uh, But uh, it has persisted to this day. Every single coal mine that was built in Varkuta, which were built all the way up to the 70s and 80s, involved some kind of prisoner labor. And I think Judith Pallet in her work has really demonstrated how much the kind of geography of penality, she calls it, of of the Soviet Union ha- has persisted. So there, there's that. But there's also just the sense of where people live. I mean, the the distribution of the population across so across the post-Soviet space has been to a large degree determined by where camps were, because again of this kind of colonial aspect of the of the notion of of transforming. Transforming spaces and building cities. You don't have a city of varkuta if you don't have the Gulag. You don't. You just don't. You just don't build it. Um, you certainly don't build a, a city of a quarter of a million people above the Arctic Circle to mine coal. Um, so, and and you know many of these cities have, of course, shrunk um, a, a huge a huge amount in the in 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 after the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union. Varkuta is... Probably less than a quarter of the size it once was, um, but uh, but regardless, I think we, we see very very clearly the kind of the, the kind of geographic legacies
1: of 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 the camps. That was Alan Barenberg, associate professor of history at Texas Tech and author of Gulag Town, Company Town: Forced Labor and Its Legacy in Vorkuta. I'm your host Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB podcast. You can you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes where if you have a moment, you can write a review. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next time, goodbye.
0: Моя моросечка, моя ты куколка, моя моросечка, моя ты душенька, моя Морозичка. Ожить так хочется, я весь горю тебя, моя любовь моей женой.